This episode is brought to you by Peloton. Many of us are already planning our New Year's resolutions, but let's face it, they rarely stick. Well, Peloton's got a gift for you. Get up to $200 off accessories like non-slip grip dumbbells, cycling shoes, heart rate monitors, and more with the purchase of a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. Don't wait. Get this offer before it ends on December 25th. Visit OnePeloton.com. All access memberships separate. Offer ends December 25th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. Oh, hi. Back again. Have another question or quandary about tomorrow? Well, you've come to the right place. This is advice for and from the future, where your friendly neighborhood futurologist, that's me, answers your questions from tomorrow, today. As you might know, I make another show about the future. It's called Flash Forward. You should go listen to it. And over the years, I've done a lot of public talks about the future. I've been on other podcasts. I've been on TV and just generally sort of made myself known as a person who tries to make the future accessible to normal people like you. Because of that, I get a lot of emails. And a lot of those emails are full of questions. Do I think it's possible that blank might happen? What about driverless cars? Will we ever get rid of cash? Are there clones walking among us? But by far, by far, the most common question I get is this one. Hi Rose, my name's Sarah, and I'm a 24-year-old college student. I've never wanted kids. Um, I've never been attracted to the idea of it. And I also really wonder whether that's an internalized fear of climate change. I've always been aware of it and the threat that climate change is having on the future and how dire it looks. Um, As a biology and ecology student, I'm getting more and more of that every day. And um, I wonder a lot of the times whether my aversion to kids is so that I don't get my hopes up for wanting them and then being disappointed when I don't. And it's just easier to avoid the thought of having them and never really wanting them as a way to avoid those complicated questions of the future. Mostly because if I don't have any stake in the future, then I can't feel as sad about it. It's kind of a personal, feels kind of selfish, but I mean, as a biology student and someone interested in that, I'm already seeing how much our planet is suffering and it would be really hard to think about what it would be like in the future for my children. And so it's just easier to not really think about it. The planet is burning. The future of humanity can sometimes feel very bleak. Climate change is going to have huge, serious impacts all over the world. Is it okay to bring a kid into this? I get this question a lot, like really a lot. And I understand it, but I also never really know how to answer it. So to help me finally answer this question for people, I called my friend, me and Christ the writer-in-residence in in the Biological Sciences Department at Columbia University, which, yes, is a real job, I swear. And I called Mian because a few months ago, she published this great, wide-ranging essay on exactly this question. Is it okay to have kids? 
why did you write this piece? Like what inspired you taking this question on? Right. So, you know, one thing that inspired it was that I, uh, had a child. (laughs) So (laughs) this was a thing that was on my mind. I am a person who, you know, writes about and thinks about, uh, the climate crisis a lot. And so when I was thinking about having a child, those things seemed to me intimately connected and, um, really hard to think about and hard to think about in part because it seems like we don't really have the language as a society yet to talk about how they're connected and, and how to think about, you know, bringing more humans onto a planet that is undergoing ecological collapse in various ways. Um, and partly, I think we don't have that language because it's a, there's a problem of scale. You know, having a child is the most intimate, personal you know, private kind of decision that you can possibly make with really high stakes. And global ecological collapse is the biggest scale over which you feel like you have no control personally, and yet which is going to impact your life and the life of your child. And so there's this kind of like, what I have seen is just like a failure to be able to think both of these things at the same time. And so I wanted to write about it because I didn't feel like I knew how to talk about it. Yeah, maybe maybe we can spell out some of the arguments that people make about why you should not have a child now and, and kind of talk through some of them. Like, what are people saying in terms of, well, you shouldn't have a kid because X? So I think there are three main trends in the arguments about why you shouldn't have a child. And they're all based in fear, really. Um you know, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, fear is a survival instinct, <laughs> um, but it is also arguably a terrible place from which to be making major life decisions. So, you know, <laughs> we'll leave that where, wherever that can sit. Um, but there seem to be three things. One is out of fear for what it will do to the environment. Alternatively, you could also call that a certain kind of care, you know, not wanting to have a child out of care for the environment. Um, or out of fear for what it would do to the environment. The second is, again, this sort of care-fear dichotomy of fear of what it would do to the child, um, or care for this unborn human that you don't want to cause to suffer. Um, And the third is really fear for slash care for your own self, and feeling like you are not capable of and don't want to bring into the world a human that you love and then watch them suffer and just feel people feel like I I can't do that. I can't do that to myself. Um, You know, all of which is sort of rooted in a real sense of fatalism about where we're headed, but it all is also acknowledging the reality that things are going to get worse. You know, we are not doing the things that we need to do to slow climate change. We are not decarbonizing the economy. Um, we could. It's entirely possible that we could. We could do all of these things. Um, but so far, we're not. And if you take our current trajectory seriously, do you want to bring a child into that kind of a trajectory? So many people cite those statistics. Okay, well, we know that, you know, X, Y, and Z actions, personal actions can actually make a difference. Not eating meat, you know, having an electric car, not having a baby. And and those things are all listed as like bullet points, uh, as if they are equivalent choices to be making. Yeah, I just don't think that having a baby is a consumer choice. Um, and I think culturally it has come to be seen as a consumer choice, um, particularly because reproductive, reproductive technologies make 
having a child, particularly in wealthy countries and for people for whom those technologies are available, make, seeming, make having a child seem like it is a choice, um, which is a very new historical development, <laughs> right? Um, but seeing a child as a consumer choice or a lifestyle choice, you know, um, like having a car or like eating meat or not eating meat, to me seems just like a fundamental kind of category error that ignores the deep weirdness around the biological and psychological desires to have a child <laughs> um, and what those might be and where they might come from, uh, in including also, you know, the ways that people are socialized to want to have children or not want to have children. Um, that just doesn't seem the same to me as eating a hamburger or not. <laughs> How much of this connects to sort of the desire for and maybe the illusion of control over the future in the context of climate change? Like we want to be able to do something and this seems like something that we can do. Right. Yeah, I think that's really meaningful because you. I think that individuals want to have actions that they can do that will make a real impact. You know, whatever real means in terms of carbon emissions or changing your culture or whatever. Um, and I think there, I think there is a dangerous sense of the bigger the sacrifice, the better it is for the planet. And I'm not sure that that equation always actually works. And part of the reason that I don't think it works is that um, the idea of personal sacrifice sort of comes to us from fossil fuel corporations. <laughs> um, so the idea of the personal carbon footprint was actually popularized by BP in a 2005 ad campaign that was a multi-million dollar ad campaign. Um, they you know, put up carbon footprint calculators online and these calculators have proliferated across the internet. Um, so when you think about your personal carbon footprint and the guilt that you feel about it and the responsibility that you feel for making yourself smaller on this planet and making your own impact smaller on this planet, when you think about the fact that that comes from fossil fuel companies that are interested in you making the changes so that they don't have to, so that they can continue to profit, um, I become less and less interested in discovering bigger ways that I can sacrifice personally. <laughs> um, I become more interested in ways that we can ask the systems around us to change and the ways that we can make fossil fuel companies more responsible for their actions um, rather than putting the onus onto individuals, which is not the same as saying that personal choice doesn't matter. I think it does matter, and I think it matters because I think culture matters. There's a, a term from social science called behavioral contagion, and it, it looks like when individuals make those kinds of changes in their communities, they end up voting differently and eventually you know climate policy will be different because people have made different voting choices because they and their neighbors have all decided to compost <laughs> right so individual choices do matter but i think that they matter not in the sense of um, direct impact on carbon emissions personal choices do matter but not necessarily in terms of bringing global emissions down. They matter in terms of changing culture so that the systems that are causing those global emissions can be changed. You mentioned this also, this idea that there's a, a number, right? The earth can, can carry X number of people. And that number has been set by a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. But I, I'd love to talk about why it is that it's, it's not really possible to set a number. So I think there are currently about 7.8 billion people on the planet. 
and demographers are predicting that this will get up to about 10.9 billion by the end of the century. Um, and so there has been sort of frantic attempts to calculate uh, how many people can live on the planet. And there's this, uh, that word carrying capacity, you know, which is this question of like, what is the Earth's carrying capacity, given that there are in fact finite resources on this planet, which is true, you know, there are a finite number of trees, there is a finite amount of fresh water that we know about. Um, so it would seem that you know, as with any organism living in an ecological system, there are only a certain number of that organism that can exist. Um, the problem is any attempt to actually calculate the Earth's carrying capacity requires understanding not just the relationship between like, you know, a frog and how much water it needs to put its tadpoles in, but like, we're talking about humans. We're talking about a relationship between population and environment that relies on this really complex interplay of forces, including institutions and technology and how we use that technology and markets and how markets work and patterns of human consumption, all of which have to do with systems that humans have built and live inside of that are not necessarily intrinsic to human nature. Um, they are the things we've built and we don't understand the relationships there very well. And so when you say only, you know, only 4 billion humans can exist on this planet doing what, <laughs> right? Living how, um, these questions are, are unanswered, which is why you get answers that are, they range from, you know, 2 billion or 4 billion to, you know, 10 billion, 15 billion, um, because people are calculating them completely differently. Do you think it's a fool's errand to even try to calculate them? Or is there any value in trying to think about that number? You know, it's a really hard question because I think I'm not sure what good it does us to have that number, right? What, what, do, you, what do you do with estimates that we know are necessarily flawed? How does that help us make decisions? Um, and I worry that having numbers like that will lead us to make decisions based on on false data, right? I think it, it gives us a sense of we want so badly to know how to live on this planet um, that we might end up making choices that are detrimental to humanity in order to, you know, quote unquote, save humanity. It, it makes me very, very nervous, I guess. Um, I don't know. Do you think it's good to have those numbers or not? I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm in the process of finishing the book and the flash forward book. And in a lot of chapters, I have encountered this phenomenon that is, you know, I'm not the first to have observed it. I, you know, you and I have talked about it before, but this this thing in which people really want a science answer to a non-science question, whether that question is a policy question or an ethics question or just sort of a personal question, right, which is the kind of thing that we're talking about. Should I or should I not have children? And they really want science to be able to step in and say, here you go. Here's the equation. Here's the graph. Here's the thing. That's the thing I'm seeing so much with all of these sorts of types of futures, not just this one we're discussing, but so many of them talking about, you know, the future of the smart city. You know, people want these technology answers to what are fundamentally civics questions about what a city should be like and who it's for and how it should work. But it seems as though we're supposed to seek out science answers to these questions because science is sort of this true way of seeing the world, supposedly. And I think that that's sort of the instinct that I'm seeing. And it 
it's, I think scientists are often too quick to volunteer to try. Um, and maybe they should just often be like, no, I'm sorry, this is not a question for us. This is not a science question. Um, but I think that it's hard sometimes for even them to see that or to, to be willing to say that. I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, and I do think one of the dangers of this number, like a carrying capacity number, is that it sounds like it has something to do with ecology and with the the nature of humans and their environment. And, you know, as you say, it doesn't. It's also a question of, you know, global capitalism. Um, it's not it's not a human science number, <laughs> um, but it will be yeah. used that way. Um, and so it makes me nervous to have numbers like that floating around because I think that there's a real profound danger in them being used for profound harm. If it's not quite the right question to ask, should I have a child or is it okay to have a child in this sort of environment? What is kind of the right question or what are some of the questions that maybe we could substitute for that one for people? One question is, you know, should I have a child? Right. The, the question, you know, should one have a child or is it OK to have a child implies that there is a single morally correct calculus that one could make and that is potentially the same for everyone on this planet hurtling towards climate warming. Um, and I think that the, the, pro- the real problem with that question is that it implies that there is a moral truth um, that I don't think exists. Um, and so, you know, one question is, you know, should I have a child? Do I want to have a child? And how do I think about the intersection of, you know, bringing a biological, bringing biological offspring into this moment? Because um, I don't think we can answer that question for humans and for everyone else, but I think we can try to answer it for ourselves, you know, in whatever sort of flailing best way we can. Um, and I don't think the answer is going to be the same for everyone. Um, and I think that's fine. So if somebody comes to you and asks you this question, like, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but like, how do you think you would answer someone? Like if I came to you and was like, Ian, should I have a kid or not? What would you say? I would say that's a great question. You should really think more about it. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that is not for me to answer. Um, You know, and as I said before, I, I really do think the point is that no one should be telling anyone else whether they should or should not be able to have children. You make this piece at the end, this point at the end of the piece. And actually, interestingly, this has come up in almost every conversation that I've had with people for this podcast so far, which is this question about choices that reveal whether you have hope or not and like what are the hopeful ways of thinking about the future and you kind of talk about how you know it giving birth and having a baby sort of like is a fundamentally sort of hopeful thing to do because you're sort of saying like I think that the future is worth sort of like taking care of in this very specific physical way is it fatalistic to just be like oh, well, I give up. I'm not dealing with this. I'm going to go to Mars and do my own thing and not have to like deal with what's happening here. I think that's a totally valid human response. You know, I don't think everyone should have a child. And if you don't want to have a child and if the idea of bringing a child into this particular moment causes you more sort of anxiety and fear and horror than the, than the opposite, then, you know, don't do it. There's no reason you should have to have a child. <laughs> um, and so I don't, I don't have judgment for that. We're not on the team of big baby here. No, I'm not on the team of big baby. I'm pro, <laughs> I, I'm pro no one telling anyone else whether they should or should not procreate. <laughs> and I, I do think, 
I do think that it is a hopeful choice. At least for me, it's not hopeful in the sense of, I think we're going to figure this out. It's all going to be okay. It is hopeful in a much more, I don't know, sort of of gritty way, I guess, in the sense that I don't believe that I have the capacity to imagine what the future is going to be like. Um, I think the future is always going to be more wonderful and more terrible than we can possibly imagine. And because of climate change, the human future on this planet is very, very uncertain. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like to live on a warmer planet in 50 years from now or 100 years from now. Um, I don't know what this planet is going to look like for children that are born today. But I do believe that even in the midst of great suffering and even in the midst of potential political collapse and chaos and all kinds of terrible things that could happen, I think also there's the possibility of humans living life with joy and honor and integrity and and having life be worth living, even if what one is living through is really, really hard. Um, and so that's the kind of hope that I have, that given the unknown shape of whatever the future is going to be, I still believe that people are going to have lives that are worth living. Um, and that gives me hope. Do you have a question about the future? Some conundrum you're facing now or one that you think we might face in the future? Send it in. You can send a voice memo to advice at ffwdpresents.com. So that's advice at like flashforwardpresents.com, but flashforward is abbreviated to FFWD. Or you can call 347-927-1425 and leave a message. And now a quick break. And when we come back, the crystal ball. Hey, I'm back, and this is the part of the podcast that is kind of a wild card. It might be an essay, it might be a song, it might be some weird archival tape. Who knows? Well, I do, because I make it. But eventually, I will stop telling you what to expect in this spot, but it is only the second episode, so we are just getting situated. Okay, let's do it. In the 1960s, a doctor named Donald Woods Winnicott delivered a series of lectures about motherhood on the BBC. Most of it is about things like teething and feeding and digestive processes. But there's also a series in which we hear from mothers themselves talking about what parenting is like. And specifically, and this is the part I love, what sucks about it. Well, I've asked you to come here this afternoon to tell me what you find irksome about being a mother. Um, Mrs. W, how many children have you got, first of all? I have seven children. Ages? Ranging from 20 to 3. And do you, in fact, find it rather an irksome job being a mum? Well, yes, I do, I think, on the whole, if I'm quite truthful. In what way? Well, I think the difficulties, really, in a family are little annoying things, like the constant untidiness and always chasing about and trying to get into bed, those sort of things I find irksome. And at the end of one of these sessions, Dr. Winnicott gives this speech about why anybody would ever become a mother. For the mother who is right in it, there's no past, no future. For her, there is only the present experience of having no unexplored area No north or south pole, but some intrepid explorer finds it and warms it up. 
No Everest, but a climber reaches to the summit and eats it. The bottom of her ocean is bathyscoped, and should she have one mystery, the back of the moon, then even this is reached, photographed and reduced from mystery to scientifically proven fact. Nothing of her is sacred. Who would be a mother? Who indeed? You know when you've got a really hard decision or feeling and you don't really want to look at it head on? It feels like it's the sun and you'll burn your retinas if you really tried to take it on directly. But not looking at it, that's also kind of terrifying because you know that it's there. There's a reason that masters of the horror genre don't show you the monster until the end, if they ever show you it at all. It's always scarier when it's just out of sight. At the very beginning, there's no difficulty because the baby's in you and part of you. Although a near lodger, so to speak, the baby is in the womb, joined up with all the ideas of babies you ever had. And at the beginning, the baby actually is your secret. The secret becomes a baby. You have plenty of time in nine months to develop a special relationship to this phenomenon, a secret turned into a baby. I want to talk about dinosaurs for a second. Please humor me. I promise this is going somewhere. Most people agree that dinosaurs are pretty cool. These huge, almost mythical beasts that once roamed the Earth. They litter our movies, our children's books, even our sports teams. Many museums have entire wings dedicated to them. And it turns out, the way we display dinosaurs in those museums often says more about us than it does about them. When the U.S. was on the brink of fighting a war, for example, dinosaurs in museums were rearranged to look more aggressive, to be strong, limber, efficient killing machines. They were depicted attacking and ripping each other apart in ways we don't actually know they did. The T-Rex was constantly arranged to be running, racing across a primordial plain, something that we know it couldn't do. It's too big and too heavy to run very fast. But we needed dinosaurs to be this way. Museums used to break dinosaur bones to get them to stand taller and look more ferocious. And even later on, when they stopped breaking bones, they still displayed them in other inaccurate ways. In the 1990s, when the idea of ecology and a holistic view of animals gained popularity, museums started displaying dinosaurs in family units. But we don't actually know how dinosaurs parented. Did they dote after their eggs, teach their young? We don't really know. The point is that these creatures are, in some ways, a mirror, a way of talking about the things we want to talk about. Power, might, care, connectivity. We map the worries and desires of the day onto them. And I think that's true of this question, too. 
Should I have a kid? A question that's huge, like a dinosaur. And when there's a thing that huge, we map everything onto it. All our other fears and hopes and dreams and nightmares. When you read people's reasoning, their pro and con lists about whether to have a kid in these past advice columns, it's not hard to read those questions and answers as a mirror held up to cultural moments. People talk about the ozone layer. They talk about their fear of rebellious teens. They talk about losing the progress they'd made as women in the workforce. And now they talk about climate change. Like the T-Rex, whose bones we broke to make taller or whose remains we arranged artfully to make a point, we mold this big, huge, ancient thing into a commentary on whatever is happening at the time. In 10 years, the dinosaurs in museums will look different. And so will this question. I don't know what it will be, but it will always be something. Something scary and unknown and kind of hard to look at. How do you cope with that, Mrs. W? Well, we have complete chaos every night from <laughs> half past so five until half past seven. <laughs> well, we really don't know if we're coming or going. Things are supposed to happen at certain times, but they never do. Because something else dreadful happens, somebody spills their milk or yes. uh, something dreadful. Or even the cat uh, gets on somebody's bed and they can't go to sleep because the cat is there or no, isn't there. And they come down about six times to see what I'm doing. And <laughs> it's complete chaos that time of the evening. I like that bit about the cat, which either is there or isn't there. It's not a matter of your doing things rightly or wrongly. What's wrong is just the way things are. Advice for and from the future is written, edited, and performed by me, Rose Evelyn. The intro music is by Also, 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 who have a new album out called The Good Grief, which you can get on Bandcamp. Thanks to Sarah Rivera for your thoughts on having children, and to me and Christ for joining me to talk about this thorny, really challenging question. I will post a link to Mian's essay in the show notes. And if you want to think even more about children, population control, and climate change, check out last week's episode of Flash Forward called One Child to Rule Them All, which is about a future in which the globe enacts a one-child policy. Tons more on the history of these ideas and the future of them there. If you want to ask a question for or from the future, send a voice memo to advice at ffwdpresents.com. If you want to get behind-the-scenes stuff about this show and the other shows in the Flash Forward Presents network, you can do that by becoming a member of the Time Traveler program. Just go to ffwdpresents.com for more about that. Until next time. <laughs>